On this week's episode of the Bet the Process podcast, we have Ken Pomeroy, the father of college basketball analytics, who will be, we actually make him give a final four, which he said no one else does. So you can exclusively hear Ken Palm's final four on the Bet the Process podcast. Rufus and I talk about different types of pools, and we talk a little bit about why he hates college basketball. Um, and then um, we fake we news, fake news. <laughs> Nobody knew you were in the background. Uh, so with that, let's start the process. Bet, 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 bet the process. Bet, 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 bet the process. Welcome to the podcast. Bet the process. It's not that typical cookie cutter nonsense. If you came just for picks, you're in the wrong place. Find a talent with the narrative to make a strong case. Instead of blindly assuming a team must be tanking, we're looking for the edge of Massey Peabody rankings. Crunching all the numbers in a simulated system that break down the data analytically driven. Media coverage of sports gambling is pathetic. Welcome to the official March Madness episode of the bet the process podcast starring myself and rufus peabody 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 i don't know peabody. i think i really just have got myself into a state where i don't really know how to pronounce your last name no matter how many times i try to do it uh so you have a new rufus has a new microphone so his sound should be crystal clear everyone should be very excited about that Jeff, I'm very excited about it. I've spent the last 20 minutes playing test sounds and just saying random things into the microphone to to hear out sounds, and it's like it's amazing. What was amazing the coolest? What, a Yeti what, was, what was the coolest random thing you said? Well, I have this pop filter which supposed supposedly stops like the P sounds from popping. So I said, Peter Piper picked a peck of pickled peppers. And did it stop the P sounds from popping? I don't know. I think so. I don't. I don't, I don't know really know what popping is. Pop right there. Well, I'm. I'm, I'm Coming up with a solution to a problem I don't have. <laughs> okay. Well, let's jump into March Madness, which is what this podcast is about. We're going to be joined later by Ken Palm uh, to talk about his ratings, etc. Um, but I wanted to start and talk about March Madness. What does March Madness mean to you, Rufus? I love March Madness, Jeff. I Wait, you, know, I, you do? You don't even follow college basketball. Well, not anymore, but but in high school, I, I would sneak at this little like battery-powered TV that I bought at a yard sale into my backpack, and I would actually be watching March Madness games like during English class. I'd have my backpack like open, and you know, it was this like really old black and white TV that that somehow the battery lasted a few hours at least. So I was able to like actually watch an afternoon game, but um Probably had like on. probably had like sixteen D batteries in it or something. No, ex- that's exactly what it had. But and I was ran up bracket in, in high school, and I like won two straight years. But and that's not because I was the one running it. I, I'm a man of integrity, but I don't know. I mean, it's just I I don't bet on college basketball, so it's it's just not a big thing for me anymore. I still like watching the games and, and rooting for the upsets, but you know, you can only focus your attention on so many different things at once and be able to do them all well. And I know you, you know, you, you, I'm sure you know that issue, Jeff, right? I mean, you don't bet baseball, do you? Uh, not really anymore. Um, I tail a friend of mine who does pretty well. You don't bet golf, do you? I tail a friend of mine who does yeah. pretty well. Although I, I asked him, you know, I asked you last week what I should do on Sunday and you didn't respond to me like a jerk. So I decided I looked at a tweet that you had earlier in the week about how Rory after whatever looked like good value. And I got Rory at like plus 240 going into Sunday. So that was fun. Nice. Yeah, it was, it was entertainment. I just wanted some entertainment on Sunday and I just, you know, you gave yeah. me nothing. So well, I'm sorry. I had to, I had to, I, I I had to make it. my own. Too late. I had to learn to fish myself. There you go. Well, it sounds like you did a good job. How did you do in the players championship? Um, I did well. Matchups did well. Um, it was it was a solid solid event. Nice. And it sounds like you did well as well. Well, I made one bet that I huh. won, so it's like about the only only bet I've won in the last uh, four days or five days. It's been a rough run. Yeah, lost well, like Jeff, you are the expert and- here on college basketball, though. So I'm excited to hear about you know what's actually going to happen from someone that knows. Yeah, well, let's see. So, uh, one is you had talked a little bit about trying to start betting college basketball 
and maybe building a model for it. Um, how would you start to approach building a model for college basketball? Well, I mean, it would start with with basic play-by-play level data and like, but good play-by-play level data. I don't think at this point, I think you need data with, you know, shot distance and preferably shot coordinates. And, and you know, there are a few good data sets out there that I know of. Um, they can be a little bit pricey, but I don't think there's anything that's that fantastic though. So um, yeah, I would do that. And I'd basically come, well, I don't want to give away everything, but I would model out um, statistics that I did that sort of isolated a particular skill. Like for example, you know, ability to, you know, create shots, ability to make shots, um, you know, and, and figure out what is predictive and what isn't, and then eventually develop some player level ratings from that. And then, cause I think, I think with, with basketball, you really do need player level ratings, right? It's not like football where this would be you know, a bottoms up. This would be a bottoms up model. Oh, for sure. Hmm. Yeah. Interesting. I just I wonder mean, if you get enough data. Cause these guys, like some of these, like, well, how would you handle like a Zion Williamson or something like that? Who's, you know, obviously one and done and hasn't played that many games. Well, I mean, I think there would be some signal in how he plays, you know, in the early part of the year, but also wasn't he a really top recruit? Yeah. I mean, I mean he's, so- Arguably the number one recruit. Right. And, and, and one of the top recruits in years. Yes. Arguably one of the top recruits in years. So that would have to inform my projection, just like it does for college football. Got it. Yeah. But you don't, your college football model is not bottoms up. It's top down. It's, it's bottoms up in that it's a play by play level model. Um, so it is a bottoms up model, but it is a, it, it is not, it's not a player level model. That's all. Got it. Like all my models are bottoms up um, with the exception of prop stuff, which comes from, which is sort of a combination of bottoms up and tops down because, you know, I, I'm basing things off of like, off of the relative contributions. Well, I'm, I'm projecting relative contributions of players, but I'm looking at how the team is projected to do overall, which is sort of from a market level or, or for not a market level, but like a, you know, projecting number of plays and stuff like that, which you do kind of, I guess, from that's, that is considered top, but that's projected using play-by-play data. So anyway, I'm getting into the weeds here. Right. Let's, let's get back to basketball. Uh, so do you do any pools then? Yeah, I do. I do. You're I, gonna I, do like I, I do terribly because bra- I, regular bracket pool. Yeah. I, I can't stop myself from picking too many upsets because especially if I don't have money on it, like it's or very much money on it. It's more fun to root for upsets. Yeah. It really I, I, I'm the same way. Like I, I I think the only pool I won was many, 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 many years ago when Michigan beat Seton Hall. And I actually had that final four, I think picked almost perfectly. I was like a kid at that point. And I won like a pool, which was like a jar full of pennies. <laughs> nice. Um, Wait, so Jeff, do you know, do you know one issue I have with the way that like ESPN tournament challenge does their brackets. And, and I think this is most bracket contests is that it doesn't incentivize picking upsets enough, especially in the early rounds. So, cause if you, because, you know, it, because you should, the later rounds become so valuable that the early rounds don't really matter. Exactly. Cause you know, the points multiply. So, you know, what it's one point for every first round game two, then four, then eight, 16. So getting the champion, right. What do you think the ideal important. scoring settings are? I think you need bonus points for an upset based on the differential of seats. I did a pool like that in high school and I thought it, it, it made it a lot more interesting. You got a lot more different brackets. It people could, you know, there, there was actually reward to picking a 15 seat over a two, you know, there's still a bunch of risk because if that two seat goes on and makes the final four, you're missing out on a lot of points. But if that 15 seat wins, you, you're, you're actually getting rewarded. Yeah. I'm in a, I'm in a pool where we draft all of the teams and the points that you accrue, there's 16 people in the pool, and the points you accrue are the round times the seed. So in other words, if you have a one seed that wins in round one, you only get one point. In round two, they get, you get two points for it, round three, three. But if you have like a 16, like last year, that wins, if they win one game, they get 16 points. If they win two games, they would get another 32 points, 16 times two. Yeah, I love that. That that's that's a variant, I guess, of what we do because we multiplied by the the round number as well. But but it was difference in seats rather than absolute seat. But I kind of like absolute seat better. There's another pool I'm in where you just put down twelve teams. You rank twelve teams that you want to put in, and you get a win. Sorry, you get points 
um, for each win, one of your team gets representative by how you rank them. So the 12, the number one team you rank will get 12 points for each win. And you only do 12, you only do 12 teams. And it's can, pretty interesting. It's not a draft though. You can just, pick you just, everyone just submits. A, yeah. Everyone could have the same list of 12. So that one I've only been doing for like a, a couple of years. And so I, I just, I haven't really figured out what you're supposed to do in that system. That's interesting though, because it's like whether you pick North Carolina or or Duke first, you know, could be a huge difference. Like everybody's going to have the number one seeds, probably one through four, but but which number one seed is where will make a huge difference, right? Yeah, and and ultimately that's a question that I wonder whether that's the right way to like, you know, you would think like you would lay out almost the ones, twos, and three seeds, and then it's just a matter of what order you put them in. But should you take an outlier or should you take, you know, a chance on it to, um, I guess the size of the pool generally, like if the size of the pool is pretty big, you definitely should. If the size of the pool isn't that big, maybe you just go with chalk and, and hope you get one or two, right. That, you know, from a ranking standpoint, I'm not well, sure. I feel like that dovetails well into sort of a uh, strategy for picking brackets in general, because it's the sort of same, it's the same predicament, right? You know, you're trying to, if, do you, do you take some crazy upset champion? Like that's a number four seed. Um, or do you stick with the number one seed? Well, yeah, I mean, that's, that's the classic thing that all the analytics people are writing about these days. You know, I think Ed Fang was the first person to sort of talk about this publicly. Um, if you're in a bigger pool, you definitely don't want to pick one of the chalk teams to win it all because it's really hard for you to win. Um, in that situation, uh, you, you're better off almost taking, like you said, not one seeds and maybe not even the two seeds, but maybe a team like Houston, um, a team like Auburn or someone like that, that's outside of that, that first upper echelon and, and may have some sort of shot to win. Yeah. I mean, I, I'm right now looking at the ESPN tournament challenge page with the who picked whom, uh, the showing what percentage of, of people picked each team to win it all in different rounds, but like 38.4% of brackets pick Duke. Although, I mean, do people even submit brackets now? I mean, you can edit them still, right? Yeah. But I think, I don't think people go back and edit them typically. Like, okay. I think they'll just add another one. Um, I mean, I filled out four brackets so far, two just sort of for fun to do it and then two for an actual contest. Um, and I think that's, I think that's all the brackets I'll fill out. Like I, I I'm done with the bracketing because you know, what's weird is being on the West coast, the Thursday, basically Thursday is a wash. So you got to get everything submitted Wednesday night. Yeah. Cause it, wait, games kick off at noon, right? Yeah. Nine o'clock on the West coast. Yeah, that's early. I mean, but that's just like, it's the same thing for West Coast people during football season. You yeah. have college football games starting at 9 a.m. But we get better weather, so it's fine. That's true. Um, sure. But like, I mean, Duke Duke and UNC have a, you know, combined are what, 54% of, of the brackets or of, of people's champions, right? Like, I would think, you know, Virginia at 7.7% or Gonzaga at 8.5% or more value give if you're in a small pool for sure, just given the fact that or small ish, I should say, um, given the fact that they have much greater chances of winning than those percentages, but, but in like a big pool. Yeah. I mean, there's only one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine teams with more than 1% of, um, people picking them to win it all. So. Yeah. I mean, and if you contrast that to say Ken Palm or to even like general, you know, futures odds, that's where you can kind of like see whether there's some value, um, you know, almost like it, it's almost like a strange overlay, right? Because if you, if one of those teams wins, you know, that's, you're probably getting paid almost better odds than the futures bet on those teams. Definitely. So, so Jeff, do you do any betting on March Madness props, any futures, anything like that? Um, I'll do some, yeah, I've, I've done some futures in the past. Like last year, I, I don't know if we talked about it, but I think I had Michigan at 30 to one or something like that, 30 to one or 40 to one from like right at the beginning of the tournament. So that game, um, obviously the finals game was a pretty big game. Um, I'll probably have some, I had some Virginia futures at seven to one. Um, and hopefully 
um, I had some, our friend um, Preston sent out some, the, the star of the daily wager, um, I guess his beard is really the star, <laughs> uh, sent out some, some picks that he had for futures. And he, he liked Virginia tech. They were like plus 1600 at that time to win um, the East. Um, unfortunately, a lot of the stuff that he talked about, I think has moved and it's no longer value, but he had liked Virginia and Gonzaga to win their regions. Um, so, um, but no, yeah, I, I do a little bit, not, not a, not a ton. I mean, I'll, I'll just put some stuff on for fun more than anything. You know, the, the Michigan thing seemed like value last year. Cause it was like right after they'd won the big 10, or I think I might have even put it on before they, before they won that big 10 game where like in the middle of that game, I think the, the futures were still up. Why so, do you ask Rufus? I don't know. So there are a lot of projections out there. I mean, you know, our friend Ed Fang does projections on his site for, you know, each, the probability of each team winning it all and, you know, advancing to a particular round. I know ESPN's BPI does that. Uh, Five thirty. So do you see some value in any of this stuff is, is the I question? Mean, you can use Ken Palm's numbers to do the same thing. I, I'm curious, what do you think? Do you think that there is value using any of these analytical systems? Um, do you think any of them can beat the market? Oh, um, yeah, maybe. I don't know. Um, can any of these systems beat the market? I don't know. March Madness is so it's so weird because it's such a crapshoot. You know, it's such a one and done and so random. And obviously they only play the tournament once and all that kind of stuff. Um, but you know, that's that's the classic analytics thing, right? Like if you put these positions on every year based on edge, would they make money over the course of the next 20 years or something like that i would say yes um i would say i haven't looked into enough to each of the systems i know that like so we do a calcutta which i think um you and i have maybe talked about before on this podcast but basically in a calcutta you auction off every team and every team is get gains value based on the number of uh, wins they get and um, their ultimate value is a percentage of the pot. So when you model out these teams, you're modeling out like what their chances of advancing are and how many wins they're going to get. But also you're trying to model out what the overall size of the pot is. Um, and in this situation, I, um, you know, in our model, we do incorporate, I think, Ken Palm and um, BPI and futures and whatnot. My, my internet. So Rufus, have you ever done a Calcutta or are you familiar with Calcutta's? You know, I haven't done one, but I read your article, your very well-written article uh, in on ESPN chalk from what, a few, four years ago, maybe. Um, yeah. It was actually an ESPN, the magazine, which was pretty cool. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, it was magazine quality, I have to say. And I, I find the idea very interesting. I know that they exist for golf. I know a lot of people have told me they have masters Calcuttas and which Dude, I'm, you could probably make very a killing. You could make a killing in Masters Calcuttas. I'm gonna have so much exposure in the Masters as it is anyway. I'm just hoping to not lose lose three. I know, but there's so like much edge in these Calcutta. I bet there's so uh, much edge in these Calcuttas for you that you could make so much money. So so, so as I see it, right, I mean, what you want to do is you need to model out the expected, like, let's, let's, let's talk about NCAA tournament. You want to model out the expected, like, based on the Calcutta rules, the expected percentage of the pot that each team is worth, right? Yeah, yes. So, so, so you, you say, model out, you model out, like, an expected, what's yeah. that? So it's, like, expected points, because you get, like, what, yeah. what is it, like, 1%, you get a certain percentage of the pot for each win in this round and then another percentage for each win this next round, et cetera, et cetera, mm -hmm. with weird bonuses along the way. Yeah. So you model that out. And then I would guess that, that, that then you have to project out, you know, what the total pot's going to be and how much people are spending, which I guess you pick up on from the early, you know, the first few teams auctioned off. But yeah. although if I'm trying to throw a wrench in everyone's like modeling, I want to, you know, I would try to, kind of mess with those first few teams and like drive bidding up or, or, you know what I mean? Yeah. I mean, one I of the things there's that, a strategy to do that. One of the things that we've found over the years in our Calcutta is, is the first 10 teams or so always go for value. Um, because everyone's afraid of bidding. Yeah. Everyone's afraid of bidding and everyone underestimates the pot size and whatnot. Um, and so like definitely getting out of the gate and buying some teams is, is good. We, we did our Calcutta last night and I unfortunately wasn't able to 
participate in it, but my team obviously bought up um, a bunch of things. And I guess we bought all the number three, number one seeds except Virginia, which is a bummer because obviously I, I like Virginia this year. Really? What did, what percentage of the pot did you pay for those one seeds? I don't know what each of them is. I know that we ended up spending, we ended up having um, over a third of the pot, I think, total. Wow. How many people are in the Calcutta? Or how many teams? I think there's probably between six to eight teams. I haven't seen the exact numbers or or, or stuff yet. Um, it's um, but yeah, I think we we have a very dominant uh, blue chip sort of strategy this year, I guess. And and we do this all off of a model. So and we we're very so my it, it's just basically I think the the number one seeds this year probably almost more than any year are well there there just seems like there's a big um, at least in people's minds, there's a big uh, division between. Let's see what the odds say on Chris. So you have Duke at plus two fifteen. You have, um, you know, Virginia at plus five forty. You have North Carolina at plus seven thirty, and you have Gonzaga at plus five forty. And then the next ones, right, which are the Michigan States, Michigans, and Kentuckys. They're all north of plus a thousand. So like Kentucky's plus twelve fifty, Michigan's plus sixteen hundred. So there is like a little bit of a Tennessee's plus fourteen thirty four. There is a little bit of a uh, of a tranche between the two of them. Yeah, that makes sense. And I was looking at Nate Silver's bracket, and, and he sort of showed the same thing. That there's this huge gap between the number one seeds in terms of probability of winning and the other seeds. But I mean, that part of that's because they just have such an they, they have such an easier path in general. Right. I mean, yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, obviously being the number one seed is puts you in a better position. It's interesting. You can bet the no on Duke at minus two seventy. I feel like that's good value. That's, so Nate Silver has them at 19%, which says that's great value. Yeah. percent to not win at all. Yeah. I, I don't know what is, we'll have to see what Ken Palm has. Yeah. I mean, does he do? Does Ken do? He takes his ratings and makes um, percentages out of them. I don't know, but you know what? Years ago, I, so I have bet on college basketball uh, NCAA tournament in previous years. I'm a little bit too busy this year because I'm too far behind on prepping for baseball. But I would, I would kind of put together like Ken Palm stuff. Um, you know, you could convert his numbers into point spreads and pro- win probabilities. I'd look at, at Nate Silver's. I'd look at at things, I'd look at some some other analytical systems and try to sort of see gauge how accurate they were in general, and, and then sort of put different weights on them, and, and just and then bet some of these futures and some of these like props, like which team to advance further, which are softer markets, I think. But um, but I, I would, you know, the funny thing is I didn't really make much money doing any of that. So not as well as you did in your World Cup betting. No, World Cup betting was great. I think soccer is a soft market. That's what we think. <laughs> Said nobody ever. Uh, I don't know. I mean, I think our friend Ted Knutson thinks it's a soft market. Well, it depends on what league, right? I think he thinks it's generally a soft market. Like the World Cup is a soft market. There's tons of money to be made there. The World Cup, I guess, is like the Super Bowl of of soccer in a way. In that you have so much money coming from people that normally don't bet, right? But you also have a ton of money coming from professionals, but at the same time, like soccer, I think soccer the generally, there's a lot of people that bet it that don't know what they're doing is the thing. I mean, because I've always thought that it was the gold standard in terms of the most efficient market. Like European soccer is the most efficient true. market out there. Really? I don't think so, but well, I, I hope you're right because you know, limits on European soccer are like astronomical if you if you live in the right jurisdictions. So Virginia to win the South is plus one twenty. Maybe I'll take some Virginia to win the South. Plus one twenty, yeah. Nate Silver says forty nine percent. What what does Ed Fang say? So there's a little bit of value per per Nate Silver. I like that some of these sites make it so easy. I don't have to actually. I just see a table. What does Ed Fang say? Um, I'm looking. Predictions. It's not on the. Ah, March Madness predictions with a PhD edge. Um, content predictions. March Madness. There we go. 
He's got his cool little data visualization. Yeah, it's a really it is a nice visualization. I agree. It's um yeah, fifty three and a half percent. He says. All right. Well, let's welcome in Ken Pomeroy, who I think just joined us. This is real time. <laughs> Good morning, guys. Morning, Ken. How are you? I'm doing quite well. How are you? Are you? Uh, I assume that your dance card is pretty full this week. Yeah, there's a lot of like interviews. Basically, I mean that's uh, kind of what fills up the schedule. So surprisingly exhausting. So do you give a a different final four and a different answer to all the same questions on each podcast? So one of them you end up being completely right on. Yeah, it's tempting. I don't think I've actually had uh, a single person ask me for my final four. How uh, how the hell is that possible? Like that would be the first question I'd always want to ask you. So that's what I would do. Who's your final four? Somehow I scare people off. I um, I don't know. I don't know how I do it. It's magical. I do, <laughs> well, like, giving, the, I do hate giving a final four, and I don't, I don't know that I state that necessarily explicitly in every interview, but. No, you always you always do that. And you know, I think that we being the most sophisticated sports analytics podcast in the world, uh, we're not scared off by your scary analytics. So <laughs> we don't we don't stand at the altar of Ken Palm. Actually we do, but that's fine. We we kneel I, at it. We kneel we at kneel it. At it. <laughs> yeah, we kneel at it. Why would we stand at it? What yeah, a heathen I am. Such a sign of disrespect. Yeah, such a How sign dare of you? disrespect. All right. Well, let, let's jump into some questions. Um I guess first off, let's make you pick a final four. Who who is your final four right now? If you were to fill out a bracket, well, if I was to fill out a bracket, I always make this point that the reason I don't like filling out brackets is because it kind of alters, bastardizes how you want to put it. My loyalties, not that I have loyalties, but I kind of like to be free and easy to enjoy all the crazy things that happen in the tournament and not worry about it. Its effect on my bracket. So uh, I think the two best stories in the tournament potentially would be either Virginia or Gonzaga winning it. Uh, Virginia, because they, you know, would have in consecutive years lost to a 16 seed and won a national title. And that would just be phenomenal. Uh, and Gonzaga, because they, you know, completely get dismissed because of the teams they play, which is kind of, uh, an odd thing. So I, I would put both of them in the final four. Uh, I would put Virginia tech in the final four, partly because I don't want to root for Duke out of the East region. And I went to Virginia tech and also it's a, it's a pretty solid pick. Like they've had a pretty solid year, whether Justin Robinson is back and healthy for them or not, they're a pretty decent threat. So I like them. And then in the Midwest, the region which features UNC and Kentucky, two teams also that I really wouldn't want to have to root for. Um, I would go with Iowa State as kind of the Cinderella type pick, although Virginia Tech, which certainly qualifies as Cinderella as well. But uh, Iowa State, uh, the sixth seed, has had kind of a up and down year, up very recently, but down slightly less recently. And uh, overall, like their profile has been pretty solid this year. So, and, and you know, a team with like kind of marginal NBA talent at multiple positions, like. It's a team you think could overachieve in the tournament. So that, that if I was filling out a bracket, those would be my four. Well, I love that. It's not Why would you like Iowa State over Houston, say, that you have rated pretty highly? Yeah, I think um, just from a pure rating standpoint, I would guess that Houston is like – I feel like my system does slightly overrate teams playing weak schedules. Um, not by a ton, but by a little bit. So – I do think either team out of that like little pod, whoever comes out of that little pod would be the team that I would pick. If I could pick a pod, it would be Iowa State slash Houston, but most pools don't work that way. So you got to, you got to pick one, but I do think Houston is a, a good kind of Cinderella pick as well. So Ken, I have a question. Um, do you, so this theory that like a team like UVA isn't constructed to do well in the tournament because they kind of have hit their sort of peak level. They're a team. They don't have, you know, the most talented players, but they have this great system. Um, whereas a team like, you know, a UNC or, or a team that has a vast amount of talent, but may not have actually played up to that talent all season, they're better constructed to make a late run. Do you think that that's like, 
is there anything to that theory? Yeah, I think so. I think like taking them separately, like Virginia, the, the problem with them is they had two problems last last year. One was that they were really dependent on their defense and there just isn't there's there are very few precedents for a team like that winning a national title. Basically it's like Louisville in what 2013, 2014, one of those years. Um that's like kind of the in the last 20 years, like the only precedent for a team like that winning a title. Uh, but the other thing is that they play just so incredibly slow and there's no precedent for that kind of team winning a title. Like there's very little precedent for a team like that, for a team playing that slow to begin with. So there's just not many, there's very pretty much zero teams that have been the, you know, easily the slowest team in the country being a national title threat in the first place. So in that respect, I can understand why team, why people would be cautious picking Virginia. I, I actually agree with that on some level. Like they, you know, they, they've had the best regular season in the country this year, but they're not the favorite. And I probably wouldn't make them the favorite either because there are those like lack of presidents that bother, that would bother you. Whereas a team like North Carolina, you know, they're not like super young. I mean, Kobe white is really important for them. Naz little slightly less important. But obviously, they have Cam Johnson and Luke May, who are super experienced players. So they have a good mix. And I think just like their overall balance on both sides of the ball, you know, really pretty consistent all year. I mean, they had some losses, and I think they flew under the radar a little bit early in the season. But you look at their overall performance from start to finish, it's been pretty representative of a team, you know, capable of getting to a Final Four. So, I mean, realistically, if I had to put a large sum of money on things, I would back UNC over Virginia. But as I said, spending the tournament rooting for UNC is something that I've been trained not to do since uh, (laughs) I can remember, you know, following basketball. So do you think in terms of like the UVA pace issue that the slowness sort of like the lack of possessions makes them more prone for upsets or prone to be beat than, um, a team that maybe has a few more possessions and a game that has a few more possessions. So has a little bit less variance in it, or am I thinking about this the wrong way? No, you're thinking about the right way. However, in principle and practice, it hasn't outside of the UMBC game, which mind you is a major, major exception. Uh, the last two years, I mean, this team has been more consistent than any other team in the country. And even like, this year, like, you know, the reason I say they've had the best regular season in the country is not just that they won games, but they very rarely were in close games. I mean, they had one game against NC State this year that went to overtime. Other than that, you know, pretty much all of their wins were decided before the last possession or two and often before the last, you know, five minutes. Um, so it does obviously make sense that the more possessions you have, you know, the more confrontations you have, if you're the better team, that should reduce your variance and reduce your upset possibility. But for whatever reason, uh, Virginia, I want to say they disprove it, but there's certainly an example of a team that has fewer confrontations and it doesn't matter. Like, so I don't know. I do wonder on some level if basketball truly works that way. Like if you have fewer possessions, maybe there's just more because there's more at stake in each possession. Uh, you know, you're trying harder each possession. You're using your bench less, maybe something like that. Um, so your true skill still comes out over a smaller number of possessions. I don't know if there's truth to that or not, but it does seem like the whole idea of playing a fast pace simply to reduce variance is um, not exactly true. Ultimately, you have to be kind of true to your style and true to your strengths. And so if Virginia suddenly decided to play at a 70 possession pace in the tournament, you know, that, that would mitigate some of their strengths they already have and probably reduce, even if there is this variance effect, really reduce that for them. Do you ever, do you, does there ever been a like talk uh, with Tony Bennett about why they p- play such a slow pace? I mean, the the thing that is crazy to me is when I watch them walk the ball up, like there's no basketball expert that would say walking the ball up and not making the other team. I mean, using the whole possession and working for the best shot and, making the other team play defense that seems like politically all wise sound but walking the ball up and letting that team on defense rest 
um, for, you know, eight seconds or something like that. That doesn't seem sound to me. So do you have any theories around why they play this way? Uh, no, it's a, it's a good question. I mean, you know, you're walking the ball up, you're also resting, I guess. So maybe there's something to that. I mean, I think there is a line of thinking among coaches that, you know, obviously making a defense work for 25 seconds has some benefit in the long run. Um, what's, I mean, what's ironic is that Virginia plays really long possessions defensively as well. So they're working on defense. So I, I don't know if there's some sort of feedback effect there. You know, they work on defense, so they want to take a break, walk the ball at the court or whatever. Um, there might be something to that, but it's, it's, it's kind of odd. I mean, the, the other thing that's uh, – sorry to cut you off, but one other thing that's interesting is that this year they shoot the three so well, and they never have taken a lot of three-pointers. And even this year they haven't taken a lot of three-pointers. And when you look at teams that take a lot of three-pointers, they tend to be like – not as good defensively like last year's Villanova team they were fine defensively but they were just explosive offensively took a ton of threes and I mean you go through history and look at those type of teams and by and large it's how it works out and they probably should be taking more threes this year and actually towards the end of the year they have taken more threes and their defense has also kind of slid a little bit during that time so it's kind of interesting it'll be interesting to see if like Virginia continues to embrace that kind of perimeter shooting type team that maybe is not dominant defensively here in the tournament. Uh, I'm kind of fascinated to see how that plays out. So yeah. you say Virginia should Wait, take more threes. Uh, really Rufus, can I just ask one more yeah, question on this or make one more point on this? So what's what's interesting is that, and I'm going to, um, I used to coach water polo at the collegiate level. And one of the things that we were very focused on was having a very balanced offense and then taking very predictable shots so that we could always get back on defense and get set up and not basically give up any easy goals etc and so it's almost like when you looked at i remember ben holland's teams at ucla and then you know if you look at tony bennett's teams maybe their their focus is solely on making sure that like they don't give up and the whole premise is behind it and, and water polo at least was that it's easier to stop a goal than it is to score a goal so if you can just basically prevent the other team from scoring any goals then you're going to be fine and and maybe that's the premise here which is that their offense is predicated on setting up a good defense and you know the 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 three pointers obviously the the perimeter shooting makes you give up more offensive possessions where your defense is not set so maybe that's maybe that's the theory here so yeah i i don't i don't know like maybe it is uh i'm not sure if there's like any actual truth to that in basketball just cuz i feel like if you're taking more threes you're probably taking fewer twos and those are the there's, you know, shots at the rim are the ones where teams can really kind of turn around and aggressively, you know, play, you know, go down the court on some sort of semi-transition and kind of beat you down the court before your defense is set. Whereas when you're taking threes, like, it seems like it's it would be easier. And I think generally, like, what little work out there has been done on this has shown that it is easier to, uh, you know, kind of defend after a three-pointer than a, a two-pointer. So... There might, I mean, maybe that is his idea, but I don't know that there's a ton of truth in it. Interesting. Wouldn't, so UVA being like a team that's been basically favored almost every game this season and, and generally is a better team than everybody they've played um, with, you know, the exception of like Duke, but, you know, you would think that, you know, while shooting threes are, you know, more efficient shots generally, um, you know, it, it also increases the variance for them. And, and the fact that they play so slow, I mean, if they have a, off night shooting threes and they're a three point shooting heavy team, you know, there's up, there's a big upset, right? Yeah. I mean, that was the, you know, that was a recipe uh, against UNBC where they were like, you know, four of 22 from three or something like that. And UNBC was like 12 of 24. Um, so certainly uh, that's a factor. It just, at some point when you're so good at the three point shot, I mean, they're making like 41% or something like that. Obviously the, the bad shooting can still creep in, but your bad nights should be better than most teams' bad nights, and your good nights will be just incredibly good. And throwing the fact too that at the end of the season, like teams are, you know, really better than ever in terms of shooting threes. I mean, that's one of the issues with I think Virginia as well is when you depend on a great defense, you know, you're facing offenses that are as good as they are all season, and namely in terms of like shooting. So. Defending the three-point shot is obviously dicey. Virginia has a great track record this year in terms of defending the three-point shot, but um, it's 
as you play better teams, it becomes more difficult to control that. And so, uh, I, I don't, I, I, don't, I guess you know, you're correct. You're adding more variance by taking more threes, but you're also like improving your your mean ability, which at this point I think would be more important than uh, than just trying to avoid a, a bad game because you know, whoever wins the tournament is going to have played above their level anyway. Like they're not going to have played average throughout the tournament. They're going to have played better than they played all year. So that seems like that should be somewhat of a priority at this point. That makes sense. So, um, so last year, quickly. I just want on Virginia real quick. I want to know. So if Virginia fall, you know, Virginia falls behind by, you know, eight or 10 points at the half to somebody like, are they, are they, at a huge disadvantage in terms of being able to to come back from that because they've basically played every game so far this season, you know, with the lead and they're just not, can, can they change their style up to be able to play from behind? Uh, yeah, I think so. I mean, I don't know what, I don't know what changing their style up would necessarily mean. Like if you're down eight or 10 at the half, you're probably not changing your style at that point. If you're down eight or 10 with five minutes to go, you are, but every team in that situation is at a tremendous disadvantage. You know, the win probability is, always less than people think at that point. Um, but yeah, I mean, this notion, you know, you'll hear it, you definitely hear it 10 times during the tournament, probably if Virginia survives that long, uh, you know, they'll go up by six points and the announcer will say, you know, it's six point lead against Virginia is like a, you know, 10 point lead or something. And, and you know, there's probably not really that much difference. Uh, I mean, you know, Virginia trailing will do the same thing that other teams will. They won't take 25 seconds on offense. They'll take, you know, 20 seconds on offense or something like that, which I don't think is like a, makes them uncomfortable. Um, so so I, I don't see that as a big deal. Although if they got down by six or eight points against Gardner Webb, I mean, that would be kind of an interesting story for all the talk about how they, you know, want to uh, kind of avenge the UMBC situation from last year. And I, I agree that mentally, like, there's probably some, like, real, like, motivation to do that. If they got – if the Gardner-Webb game is close for, like, 25 minutes, I could see that being uh, maybe in their head a little bit. Hopefully that won't be close. I, I mean, like, just for their sanity, I, I would hope that's not close. Um, so last year when we talked about Virginia, you gave this sort of cautionary tale about them, which was, you know, that they were ranked outside of – um, the top 25 going into the season and sort of the precedent for that is not very good. Are there teams this year that have kind of burst onto the scene that you think um, may be not as good um, as they're rated, like maybe like a Texas Tech or someone like that? Yeah, Texas Tech is interesting. They got one vote in the AP poll, I think. And when you looked at like computer ratings in the preseason – you know, I don't, I didn't keep track of them all, but certainly mine had them like borderline top 25. And I know there were others that did. Um, so I really think people uh, underestimated Chris Beard. Like it was fairly obvious. Chris Beard was just a fantastic coach, like might be the best coach in the country, just in terms of being able to like from start to finish, identify talent, coach them up and like win basketball games with them. He's obviously not in a position that John Calipari or Mike Krzyzewski is in terms of being able to, recruit the very best talent in the country, but what he's able, what's re, what he's realistically able to recruit, he does the best with. And, you know, he coached one season at Arkansas Little Rock and had their best program, you know, best year in school history. And he coached before this year, two years at Texas Tech and had the be, one of the best years, maybe the best year in Texas Tech history last year, uh, which that's a pretty amazing track record. So, I mean, Texas Tech is certainly a team that has surprised people, but I don't know if that surprise was like maybe as warranted as, uh, maybe Virginia last year. So I don't know that I would necessarily target them as being overrated per se. They are one of those teams that falls into that, you know, kind of all defense, mediocre offense type of bin that tends to struggle this time of year. Uh, I will point out they were in that bin last year and made it to the elite eight. So it's not like Chris Beard couldn't do it. If anybody could do it, it'd be Chris Beard. You know, like he, he's kind of in that Rick Pitino, uh, on that Rick Pitino type level, in my opinion. So he, he could, you know, take a team like that and drag it to the final four. But I think mainly it's Texas Tech style that I would be more suspicious of than the fact that they were uh, overlooked early in the season. Is there uh, any other teams that you 
would caution people against that you think are overrated or haven't have a chance to sort of have an early exit? Um, I mean, the problem this year is that the committee did a really good job with seating, at least relative to like power ratings. So, you know, last year you had Xavier who was a one seed and they were like 15th in my power ratings or something. And uh, they were kind of an obvious pick to go out early. And this year, like the top eight seeds, you know, the one and two seeds are all like in the top eight teams. Like I think people agree that those are the, the eight best teams in the country. So uh, trying to, you know, pick one of those teams to go out early is problematic. I mean, Tennessee is probably the worst of those teams. Their offense is awesome and their defense is like 34th or something. So their offense is third, their defense is 34th. So they're the only team in the top top eight that does not have both an offense and defense in the top 20, which is somewhat problematic. But I do think Tennessee's good. Um, that That is, by the way, another reason maybe to have a little bit more confidence in Virginia is that so you know, Tennessee and Virginia in that south region produced the three seed and Kansas State's the four. So Kansas State's like probably easily the weakest four seed. And that region, the top seeds are, you know, outside of Virginia, easily, not easily, but they are the weakest group of seeds. So marginally that kind of helps Virginia to some extent, but all that said, like, I don't hate Tennessee. Like, I think it's a fine pick if you want to go that route. They're, you know, they got, again, a long kind of track record this year of playing well against quality competition. I think people are a little down on them because late in the season they've lost games, but they lost on the road to LSU and Auburn and Kentucky, I believe. They lost all three of those road games and then lost to Auburn in the SEC final on a neutral court. I mean, most teams are going to lose most of those games, even if you're really good. So, um, yeah, it's hard to, like, say this team is massively overrated or something. I think, like, LSU is a three seed. Like, they're the weakest three seed in the East region, the weakest three seed overall. And, obviously, the coaching turmoil, you might have some doubts about them. Um, they're so, part, they're going to go out to Rufus's alma yeah. mater in the first round. I was going to ask, do my Yalees have a chance? Yeah, I mean, that figures to be a decent game. Like, you know, Yale always kind of plays a style that is, I think, kind of big boy basketball, you know, uh, you know, able to rebound well, particularly. I mean, that's kind of like the the main thing. Um, so, they have, certainly Yale has a chance. I guess, I, you know, it's just hard to know, like, how affected LSU is by all of the turmoil that's kind of happened here in the last couple of weeks i mean on paper they're still a pretty solid team but it'd be great if if we get a replay of of that baylor um the yale upset of baylor where they asked the baylor player about how the yale players were able to out rebound them (laughs) yeah that that was great the guy basically said they were they were able to out jump it was like a great answer it was yeah anyways you shall go back and watch that on on the youtube i'm sure it'll be I'm sure it's there. What about any other any other upsets then that that you think um, have a high likelihood or higher likelihood than? I mean, obviously, one way you can look at it is the spreads to see what the market thinks. But are there any ones that you you kind of are looking at as as big upsets? I mean, in the first round, uh, the UC Irvine Kansas State game is pretty intriguing, just because Kansas State. Their offense is ranked outside the top 100. Their defense is fourth. Their pace is like in the bottom 30. And UC Irvine's pretty similar, like just worse, but, you know, poor offense, competent defense, slow pace. Game is going to be incredibly low scoring. I mean, it should be low scoring. I think the total on that is like 120 or something. So I don't have a lot of confidence in Kansas State. Just a very subjective opinion. They've proven me wrong all season. And I do like, Bruce Weber personally, like I, it would suck if he like lost in the first round because I feel like he gets kind of dumped on a lot. But uh, that game should—I mean, it's hard to imagine either team in that game like separating itself very much. So, um, won't that, that game be a lot of that be about the health of of Dean Wade? So yeah, I mean, it seems like Dean Wade's out for that game. I guess they haven't maybe—I don't know if they've completely ruled him out, but uh, doesn't seem good for him. He's kind of kind of chronic a chronic foot issue, which. Uh, doesn't seem to be healing itself. So, yeah, I mean, that is a, an effect, too. He's really one of their, you know, best offensive players. So if their offense is 104th with him on the roster most of the season, you know, it's probably 
30th without him. So, uh, yeah, that's a another crucial issue in that game. Yeah, I mean, there that spread's only four and a half right now. Um, you have um, a situation in that. What about the Oregon Wisconsin game? What are we to make of Oregon after their run in the in the Pac-10? Obviously, or Pac. What is it? The Pac-12? Yeah, we're at the 12 now. Yeah, yeah, Pac-12. Uh, well, they call it the Big Ten still, even though they have 12 teams, right? <laughs> yeah, I don't know what the difference is there. Um, Pac-12 kind of has this tradition of. You know, they originally were the Pac-8 and then they became the Pac-10 and the Pac-12. They had this tradition of changing their number, whereas the Big Ten, they just didn't want to go to the Big 11, I think, when they added Penn State many years ago. So that kind of set a precedent. Well, they can't be the Big 12 now, otherwise they'd be. Right. Yeah. yeah. They'd someone, be the Big 14 at this point. Someone but... beat, beat them to it. There's 14 teams there now? God, yeah, I can't yeah. even keep track anymore. Uh, what about the or- Oregon? What do you think about them? Is are they Have they sort of turned a corner, or is this just another sort of Dana Altman being able to coach them up in a very weak conference. Yeah. I mean, there's something to that. Like they're all season. They've been kind of ranked pretty highly in power ratings in the PAC 12, like not the best, but like third or so, like most of the season. So they're always kind of lurking and they uh, just, you know, did not do well in close games in league and really kind of, underachieved there and then you know down the stretch their defense sort of caught fire which is kind of a Dan Altman trademark he usually has good defensive teams and they just played really well you know last four games of the regular season four or five games and then uh the four games of the Pac-12 tournament obviously although they did I mean they had to kind of pull a rabbit out of a hat against Arizona State the semifinals I think people who think they just like rolled through all these teams uh, probably weren't watching the Pac-12 tournament probably nobody was watching the Pac-12 tournament but I I was watching it. I was there. And uh, Arizona State was up seven with like five minutes left, four minutes left, something like that in regulation. And, and Oregon needed a few breaks to force overtime there. So, I mean, I think they're they're good. I'm, I am kind of surprised they're getting so much respect with respect to Wisconsin because I think Wisconsin's really good too. And they're kind of like this team's flown under the radar all year. The Big Ten, if you believe they're the toughest conference in the country, you know, they that 20-game schedule really, I think, hurt the reputation of teams outside of Michigan and Michigan State you know, something like Purdue and, and Wisconsin and, and Maryland to some extent, um, you know, teams that had to just play these like brutal long conference schedules and rack up a bunch of losses. So, um, you know, obviously if your pool rewards picking the worst seed, it kind of makes sense to pick Oregon there. Cause it seems like a pretty cheap investment, but I do think Wisconsin will prevail in that game. Rufus, you got any questions? I'm dominating as always. I guess not. <laughs> okay. Sorry, uh, well, so, um, what do you think? Well, now it's interesting because you mentioned this early on um, that the committee got things right. Do you think that there's, you know, that's really the macro impact of Ken Palm? <laughs> uh, I think maybe indirectly because, you know, the, the net ratings they used ended up being pretty similar to my ratings and, I don't know how much that influenced seating. I don't, you know, it's possible like just the resume approach just happened to line up well this year. Uh, and I think that is a factor to some extent, like you could, um, you know, look at my ratings relative to like the AP poll and there weren't a ton of outliers this year. You know, there wasn't that team that was, you know, coming from like a conference outside the top six or so and, uh, you know, dominating its league and, you know, not being given respect nationally or something like that. Uh, I guess the the ones that might be like paradigm shifts from previous years, like Wofford getting a seven seed. Uh, I don't know if they would have got a seven seed 10 years ago. Uh, typically teams like that, that didn't have uh, a lot of quality wins, even though they had a great record and, and were dominant in their league scoring margin wise would have been seated worse. I feel like um, so that, that's a case where I guess I was impressed with the committee. If they want to, if they want to seed teams based on strength, like they certainly did the right thing there. I think like Nevada as a seven seed, I think uh, was interesting for the, like the opposite reasons. Like they were pretty dominant all year, pretty highly ranked in the AP poll, but it was clear like late in the season that they were not like a top 10 team, despite the fact that they were kind of ranked in that neighborhood all year, even after losing a game or two late in the season. And 
So to give them a seven seed, I thought um, was right. Again, if you, you know, there's, there's obviously an eternal debate. Do you seed teams by their overall ability or do you seed them by their resume? And we've never really hashed out that discussion as a, as an industry, but this year it appears that they were more interested in seeding teams by their overall ability. I think you have, you have the same problem in college football too. You know, it's, it's, it's like, what are the criteria, right? Yeah. I feel like in college football, they really avoid this discussion at all costs. Um, you know, they, I, as far as I know, they don't have any like objective measures to determine the, the playoff and, you do get into this kind of discussion. Is it the best teams or is it the most accomplished or whatever? And determining that over a 12 game schedule is also more complicated, but um, at least in college basketball, I'm pretty impressed, especially this year. It just seems like the conversation was a little more mature about these things. And I, we're still not doing it perfectly or maybe even, even well in terms of selecting the teams. But I think we're at least aware of a lot of people are aware of like the issues that need to be addressed in that respect. And, uh, so in that respect, I think we're like light years ahead of football. So what do you think of this sort of closet industry of, of projecting what the, you know, what the committee is going to, which teams the committee is going to take? I mean, it's, it's Jeff, Jeff, Jeff gave me crap about doing that for college football. And it kind of seems like the same thing, right? You're, you're predicting what this committee of people that are humans and therefore act irrationally is, is going to do. Yeah. I, I mean, I think it's a useful service just because they're in aggregate. Those people are usually pretty cl- close to what actually happens. So I think it's useful. Uh, one thing I, first of all, there's like 120 people that do it. And I don't understand why 120 people do it. You probably need about six, you know, <laughs> you know? <laughs> and it's just such tedious work. Like I did it one year, like 12 years ago. And I was like, I'm not doing this again. Like, there's just no point. Like there's a bunch of other people out here who know what they're doing and are providing that service and I'm just like duplicating it. So I don't understand why so many people do it. And I guess the other thing that I don't understand is kind of this convention that people use where it's like, if the season ends the day. So like, you know, on January 12th, like we're putting out brackets as if the season ended then. And that's, to me, that's not as useful as trying to maybe project out the rest of the season and understanding, you know, this team that is ranked like third in power ratings and only has one quality win to that point is probably going to get a lot more quality wins down the stretch. And, you know, shouldn't be seated like eighth in your mock bracket. Like that's it. The other thing I don't understand about it, but in general, like, you know, it's a, it's a good service. I just, I don't need to see like Joe Lenardi's face in every game that I watch you know, the last three weeks of the season. So, okay. For my entertainment, um, you know, what, what, what would you make the over under on the number of 14 or higher seeds to win in the first round this year? Mm. I'd probably uh, probably make that one with maybe you know odds favoring slightly higher than one. Who, who's that? Know. Who's that one team? I don't even know if it should be that high, really. Uh, yeah, I was gonna say a half. Yeah, uh, yeah, that's probably appropriate. Half, um, I mean. Yeah, I don't know. Like, there's no, you know, who's that team? I don't, like, you look at them. I mean, they're all, like, super crazy upsets. I guess you'd probably Yale would have the best chance just eyeballing it. Um, we didn't pay, Rufus didn't pay Ken to say this. <laughs> I like it, though. <laughs> um, we're going to give you one last question to let you go. Um, it, we've been talking about uh, big pools versus little pools. And if you're in a big pool, obviously, you, you try to pick a non- um, non-chalk or non-favorite team to win. If you were able and you were going to pick a non-favorite team to win, who would that team be? Uh, yeah, it depends like how, how deep you have to go for that. I feel like if you're in like the ESPN pool, you have to go kind of deep. But I guess like Tennessee kind of splits the the middle there. Like they're, I haven't looked at like the picks, but I would assume they're the least popular pick among the top eight seeds. They're they're four point four percent. They're actually a little more popular than Michigan. Ah, interesting. Uh, well, that is actually pretty fascinating to me. I'm surprised. Um, I guess I would then go with Michigan. I mean, uh, I think obviously Michigan got to the title game last year, so they certainly have uh, recent history on their side. They have a very similar team, not exactly the same personnel, but kind of a similar style this year and similar track record. 
And, you know, you could, it's not hard to imagine them getting out of that region, getting by Gonzaga or Texas Tech. I mean, th- th- those aren't intimidating. So I think I guess that would be the team I would go. With. As I mentioned, like the top eight seeds are all pretty strong. So it's not like you're just completely picking a team that can't do it. So, I, yeah, I, I guess I'd go with Michigan. How about a team outside of the top eight? Would you would you say Iowa State or what's a what's a team there? What about Yale? Do they have a chance? <laughs> I'm not gonna quite go that far. I'm not gonna quite go that far. But uh, yeah, I think uh, Purdue is actually well, you know a team we haven't talked about, but another one of those kind of Big Ten teams that flew under the radar. And I you know I did this piece for the Athletic about looking at kind of similar teams from the past and how they fared. And Purdue's comps actually were pretty successful. And I, I do uh, like them. It seems like they're pretty unpopular at this point for whatever reason. Uh, obviously, I think coming off that Minnesota loss in the Big Ten tournament didn't help matters. But uh, I like Matt Panner's team, and uh, I think I would throw them out. They're obviously in addition to Virginia Tech and Iowa State, who I mentioned. But, um, yeah, probably Purdue's got even you know better prospects than those two teams. All right. Well, we will let you go with that. Um, thanks a lot for joining us, Ken, and um, giving us some knowledge about the tournament. Um, have a good tournament. All right. Thanks, guys. Thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. The breakdown of data analytically driven. Media coverage of sports gambling is pathetic. The bottom line is watered down. It seems like they don't get it. Puppeteers are put to end just running off a of leaded. None of it's organic. It all sounds synthetic. That's why I fucked with Jeff.